we should be in all classes, not just social media, adequately teaching individuals how to communicate with the other people that they need to share information with. And sometimes that's even like the hiring managers who are looking at your resume. How do you communicate the education you have, the certification you have, the experience you have in a way that's going to give them who probably know nothing about your position and role, they're a HR director, right? Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to Social Convos. It's a new year, second episode of 2023. Shanluk, how are you doing? I'm doing okay, not great. Had a, a rough week, to be honest. I learned it's, from my... Yeah. Man. It's just been the first seven, no, 10 days no, of I, January. I asked a question. I asked a question personally, like to everybody in Syria. I'm like, how has your first week been? And there, there's been a combination of like really positive, like, hey, yeah, I'm doing great and I'm reaching all my goals. And like, I haven't even started. I haven't even started the year. And I'm somewhere in between. I told myself, I'm not going to rush it. Uh, around this time last year, I probably had six daily blogs done and was active on all social media platforms on a daily. And this year I decided I'm going to slowly build it up. But my yeah. wife got a little sick last week, so I had to learn some parts of the household that I don't usually do. So often that leads to more respect towards her for understanding what she goes through every day when I don't help her out on certain days. So that was a good lesson of humility. Well, to, to make you feel better, my productive week started this week like last week was also like you know kind of releasing and just letting go whatever basically recovering too because uh, the first few days january 1st and 2nd i was kind of uh, feeling sick so probably because of the week before yet christmas and oh yeah there were a lot of things like a so lot of things it was a recovery I mean, week so yeah don't, don't, I, I don't think you should and, and on a positive note on a business perspective, a lot of, of new opportunities are arising. So many that I might have to say no to a couple of them. So that's even even probably the worrying part. But today we're going to talk all about, about social media and education. And I think it's funny because I think today's guest, that's how we met. We actually met in 2014. And this is a fun story because I think we talked about it a couple of times. And in 2014, I was in social media marketing world. I was back in, I think it was still in the Hyatt. And they had like these rooms where you could get together to have lunch for different topics. And I chose on that day, I chose the education room. And we were talking among a group of people and I connected with someone. And we kind of stayed in touch. So both on Twitter and LinkedIn, very occasionally. And, but every time we were in touch, it was always, a very positive experience. So in 2000, I think it was 18, when we decided to get international speaker brought from the US as well, she was actually the first US-based keynote speaker that we flew over from the US 
to Suriname for the social media marketing world. And we've stayed in touch. I have to be honest, in the last year, it felt more like 2015, 2016 than, than the, the years that we really did a lot together. But I actually appreciate a lot of the work she does because I think she has the hardest job in the world. And that is to convince people that social media marketing and social media strategy is actually a profession. So without further ado, let's introduce Jennifer Ratka. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Jean-Luc. Hello. Hello, Diego. Good to be here. And I love your memory. It is so good. How fun to look back at the years we've known each other. Yeah, especially Twitter and LinkedIn. I mean, in Suriname, LinkedIn is kind of, okay, it's being used a lot more, but saying like, hey, yeah, we stayed in touch to Twitter and that's actually how we kept being connected. And that's something that I really had to accept that internationally the Twitter space is actually quite big, especially for, <laughs> for if you have similar interests. And I do want to ask you because Diego and I are really being kind of immersed in the, in the Web3 and blockchain space. How is, for you, how has Twitter changed between like six, seven years ago and now? Is it the same or do you feel you use it differently as well? Oh, I don't feel like I use it much differently than when I started. But my Twitter journey is kind of an interesting one. It started back in 2012. So just a couple of years before we met at Social Media Marketing World. But prior to that, I, I wasn't on Twitter. I swore I would never tweet. I even wrote a blog post about it. You can see it on my LinkedIn profile. But I didn't really understand the platform, right? I, I expected it to be the thing you heard about, the pop culture and what the Kardashians were up to and what somebody's eating for lunch. And those are not things that I had much interest in, right? I really wanted to network and connect with professionals specifically in social media marketing, but also in other areas of interest. You know, I, I connect with folks that have kids that are swimmers or like to camp and RV, you know. So I've always approached it the same way, to have real open conversations, figure out how I can support other people or learn something new or share resources with folks. And so I continue to do that today. And I love it. I don't have any problems with it. When Elon took over, Everybody was like, okay, we're leaving. And I'm like, well, I'm not leaving until the cool community I built there is gone. Then I'll leave. So, well, have you seen a significant change in your community, so to speak, during the takeover? Because, you know, whenever there's some kind of uh, drama or like a big event happening in social media, there's this, you know, hype peak and then it suddenly dies down and then it's business as usual. So have you seen anything like that in your community? Oh, absolutely. The conversation around, you know, are you taking your clients off of here? What are you recommending to your, comp to your uh, corporations that you work for, or the colleges you work for? That conversation definitely peaked during the transition and while Elon was, you know, doing different things and, and uh, a lot of conversation around the check mark and whether or not you'd pay for it, you know, came out for a while. But I feel like most of that has calmed down in the last couple of weeks. I don't know if it was the holidays or if people just got tired of talking about it, but it seems to have gotten back to more business as usual, at least in my community now. So I have to ask the question, do you know anyone or have you for the National Institute of Social Media? 
paid for the check mark and how was the experience? Have you talked to anybody who has paid for the check mark and how the experience was? I haven't, and I did not do it either. So I haven't really reached out too much to people to find out about one, did they do it and why? But it is an interesting conversation we might have to have here in the future. Maybe it will interview a few folks. Yeah, because as usual, these kind of things are not available in our country. We again have to wait to be able to get Twitter Blue and from Twitter Blue kind of sign up for the check mark. I've known a couple of people who have tried it for a month. They said it was the same. So basically it just comes down to a status symbol and which is kind of interesting because when you can get it, everybody wants it. But as soon as you have it, it's like, okay, so I'm verified now, or at least I have a blue check mark and some troll account has it as well. Wow. Okay. So it's not really that special anymore. So I think that's one of the conversation that comes around. But I haven't seen anything, like you said, that really impacted or made a difference on the space. No, I haven't either. I mean, there was the turmoil, like Diego mentioned, right? Like people were just nervous about what will happen. And when Elon was letting lots of people go, there was a concern about the infrastructure just kind of imploding. I didn't see any loss of service. I didn't see any, you know, issues with connection or anything that way. And far as verification goes, I wasn't before. I'm not worried about being so now. So I, I had the SMS in my name. And so it is not on any legal documents. So I don't think I'd get verified anyways, because my name is not exactly as it is on my driver's license or passport. So. Well, the verific- I've seen verifications for people that are anonymous or have like pseudonyms. So I don't think that that's a matter of, you know, having it legally as you are registered basically as a legal citizen. But to stay on the topic on Twitter while we're at it, I want to bring in like, you joined Twitter in 2012, right? As you mentioned before. And I think I joined 2011, 2012. I haven't really used it in the earlier years, but what I've seen how Twitter is being used, like one thing is like the velocity of how fast news spreads and how real time it is. And mm-hmm. now, especially with Twitter spaces, there's even like unofficial reporting or journalism help happening throughout spaces and the speed at which information exchange, like you had cases on, for example, the, the FTX in the incident, a lot of like global issues happening around the world, the arrest of it. And to date, for example, Twitter space is going days back, you know, back to back. Like if you're looking at it from an education, social media perspective, how is this philosophy of, of news kind of unique to Twitter? Oh, that's a good question. It is definitely unique to Twitter because of the speed at which it travels and the currently the level of con goodness characters that you have. You don't need to really say much. Right now, in I mean, spaces is different. It's audio, right? But in the written side of Twitter, you just put a short sentence and a picture and all of a sudden you're spreading whatever news happens to be there. It can be an amazing tool from that. You know, just a few months ago when Hurricane Ian hit the East Coast, Florida or West Coast of Florida, I guess it was the Gulf there. There was a lot of communication being done in real time for resources and services and how people could get saved right, or say they were safe in certain places, but there's a lot of misinformation happening. 
So one of the things from the educational side that we really need to do is help people understand how to sort through and problem solve fake versus real news. And we, we've had to do that on all platforms, but I think because Twitter is seen as that news outlet in so many ways, like you were talking about, Diego, we've stopped really verifying who is the person telling us this information, right? Do they have any firsthand information or are they just spreading something because they want to be involved? And even if they have firsthand what does it look, what does that look like? Are they there at the eye of the storm or are they in, you know, California reporting on Florida? Like it, it's really interesting to help educate our community not only in marketing, but just the general public across the globe to say, look, fact check some things before you jump in and share. And it's so easy to share on Twitter. And yeah, it's easy to share on the other platforms too, but we do it less. People just hit that retweet button on Twitter like nobody's business and share things that they think are real, even if they're not. And so that's where education really kind of plays a, a part. We've got to teach people to think. think. And, not, and anonymity is also playing a very big role because we have it more with Facebook, for instance. If you look from a certain Mies perspective, we have it with Facebook. Like it's really easy to share, like not even fact checking if it's true, but and on Twitter it's anonymous. So like there's no responsibility uh, that that's, you can hold somebody responsible because you don't actually know how to, who that person is. Which once makes me want to jump into the topic as well. Quick shout out to Plu who was watching it from, from LinkedIn and then a, a question from Twitch. So Twitter is a comment from, from, from Twitch. So there's a platform where people speak about their opinions and feelings. And it brings me to a situation where I had, where I was teaching upcoming dip, dip, diplomats on the use of Twitter for their diplomatic career, which made a lot of sense because they were like, okay, I can actually use that, be in contact with different world leaders who in some cases will follow back. Like there's a pretty big, there are different people in, on Twitter. Some people follow back, some people don't. But you could reach out and you can still, but I think 10 years ago, especially, you could reach out to CEOs and ask them a question and they would respond. Of course, as the platform grows, the, the, the amount that is possible is less and less, but still it was a possibility. And I was, I convinced them to be on Twitter, to understand and to learn more what's going on in the world. And they clashed immediately with a group of locals that were actually on Twitter for entertainment purposes. They were there to share memes, to talk about how they felt. And these two groups, like the personal group and the professional group and the personal group, they collided completely. So how do you deal with that when you're actually considering for organizations to kind of jump in on the, on the Twitter space? How, how do, how, what's the correct way? Because that's, I think is very different from, from Facebook, which is fans and family first versus Twitter, which is interest first. So would you have any tips for people who are just coming on Twitter like you were 10 years ago and are completely lost on how to use the platform? Yeah, I mean, I always recommend that you look for people that you want to learn from or communicate with and follow them, but also listen to the conversation, right? So if you're doing it as a brand, it's a little different than if you're doing it as an individual. When I jumped on as an individual, it was about teaching myself 
what can this platform really do for me, right? So I connected with marketing professionals. I connected with educational professionals, with folks that I felt were interesting and shared good resources and information. I didn't connect with a lot of political advocacy groups or a pop culture, like I mentioned earlier, because those things were not part of my goals for the platform, right? And I did that as an individual, but that is 100% what an organization needs to do first is figure out, well, what is your goal with the platform? Who's your audience? Are they even there? Because sometimes they're not, right? Sometimes your audience isn't on Twitter. So you've got to figure that out. And then answer that question very to the example you got, Jean-Luc, is what do they want from you on that platform? And if your audience is there for only entertainment purposes, then why in the world are you trying to educate or advocate or incite, you know, some sort of action from them in a super buttoned up and political type of fashion? It's not going to mesh with what their needs and goals are. It's going to come across as broadcast, right? It's going to come across as, as that organization or those diplomats in that example as just shouting their opinions into the void. And so instead, it needs to be about understanding that audience and what they need. An example separate from Twitter for me right now, actually, is, is TikTok. I don't know how much you all are using that, but I get a lot of grief because NISM is not on TikTok. And people will say things like, well, how can the National Institute for Social Media not be on TikTok? Well, there's a couple of things, right? What do most people go to TikTok for? Mm, entertainment, right? Yes, you can sell products and services there. Yes, you can educate there. But the majority of my audience, the majority of the social media marketing professionals that go there are going there for ideas, for their brands, or to lose themselves by getting entertained for a while. They're going to come and learn from me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. They don't want to, right now, see that on TikTok. If that changes, then fine. But the second part to that is, do I have enough bandwidth to be absolutely every potential place that our audience can be? We need to choose and be strategic about that as well. And right now, my bandwidth does not include TikTok, at least not for the return on investment, right? So that's, that's very important. Yeah, the, the choice of where your audience is and what works for you as the social media landscape expands, companies, organizations need to choose, do they fragment themselves or kind of double down on, you know, what, what, what already works? And when do you need to decide to pivot as Facebook has evolved over the years? Kind of the, the audience has kind of aged in a sense. So as the newer generation gets into the workforce, for example, that they're not on the older platforms as much anymore. But this brings me to back to your personal journey when you had a background in higher education first before transitioning or let's say combining that with social media. So how did that transition in happen for you? Like what, what, what was that journey like for you? Yeah, it was an interesting journey and one that I keep looking back at and going, wow, how did I, how did I really get here? Right. I had spent more than 15 years in higher ed and I had done admissions or sales and marketing through that. And then I ended my higher ed career actually in training and development. So I was teaching other people how to market and sell educational programs, right? For lack of better words, those are 
the best words I'll give it for now. And in 2012, I had the opportunity to transition. And I didn't just jump right away from higher ed into social media. I actually went on kind of an exploratory journey, if you will. I was getting my master's in organizational leadership. I was trying to kind of figure out what do other people do, right? Because I had spent so long in higher ed that I was like, what jobs are in my backyard? Like, I'm, I'm done traveling. I want to know what people are doing. So I connected myself with a ton of different fantastic networking organizations locally here in the Minneapolis, Minnesota area, as well as some that were starting to do some things globally and online. Although back in 2012, that was a lot less prevalent than it is in a post-COVID era. But I started going to all these events. A lot of them were about women entrepreneurs or women in leadership that resonated with me, fit, right? But I also went to local business networking events and chamber of commerce and just tried to kind of figure out what are some of those opportunities and areas that I am maybe good at? Like I have some skills, right, that I could bring to that industry or to that world. And during that process, a friend of mine who happened to also be the real estate agent who sold us our house, he said, hey, I met this guy and he's doing this thing and you guys should meet. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> what do you mean, right? And it was through a business networking event. He had met the founder of the National Institute, Eric Mills. And he said, this guy needs some help, you know, kind of getting connected to colleges and universities. And since you got 15 years of higher ed experience and tons of contacts over there, you guys should connect. And so I did. And I was really excited about what the National Institute was starting to do. Right. And so I started off with them as a business development person connecting the Institute with colleges and universities across the U.S. And then I got certified myself. My apologies. Things are ringing here. I got certified myself in 2014, became an educator for the Institute, and then had the opportunity to go out, start my own company for a while, and return in 2016 as CEO and owner. So it's been a fun journey, but it didn't start how I expected. It's kind of been twisting and turning. Just for the listeners, could you describe what the National Institute for Social Media is? Yes. So the National Institute for Social Media is an industry standardized certification in social media strategy. And so really what we do is we have an assessment that has been built by a volunteer advisory board based on research studies that we've done in the marketplace that say, if you're going to be a social media strategist, you need to know these core areas and be proficient in understanding these concepts. We have a test people take and successfully pass that exam and they earn a certification. It's a lot like a industry licensure, but it's a certification. The certification itself is good for two years because this industry changes all the time. Yeah, so they have to do, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they have to do continuing education in order to stay current. We're, we're focused on that learning process 100% of the time. But that is what we do. Our main focus is not necessarily entry-level social media professionals. It's folks with at least three to five years of experience in marketing and social media. Most of them have 
some sort of college education. It might be a two-year associates, but the majority are coming to us actually with a bachelor's or master's degree right now. And they're not necessarily looking at, you know, a content creator role, something that's that specific and tactical. They really want to understand the strategy and lead the teams. Those are the folks who are getting certified through us today. To stay in the context of higher education, like when you started out, you did marketing, sales, and social media. I'd say Facebook started, what, 20, 2006? Kind of, I, I made my account in 2009. So it took like, what, five to 10 years before it, it really picked up and you had that critical mass that people started to adopt and started sharing it. In the higher education space, how has social media kind of, if, if you look at it, courses, the development of courses integrated into that? Like, how did new courses start? How did it get embedded with marketing? Like, how, how did that evolve in the education space itself? That is such an awesome question and a very difficult one to answer because every educational institution is a little bit different in their process and procedures. Some schools have been fantastic at embracing social media early on, bringing in folks like us, the National Institute for Social Media, to help them with curriculum that develops individuals or candidates for certification. Others are, are still teaching a lot of theory. You know, all these years later, they're still just kind of, hey, look at the history of social media and not really embracing how do we pair these students to go out and be productive in this space. So it kind of depends on the philosophy of the schools, but more and more of them are starting to realize social is not going to go away. And in order for people to be successful when they leave their institution, they need to have some more specific education around how to implement this, whether it be personal branding or organizational marketing and branding and sales or even customer service, right? So it's been really fun to watch the number of schools that are creating classes that are bringing in guest speakers so that they can kind of connect students with the real world a little bit more has been encouraging, but definitely slow. And as much as I love higher education, especially here in the U.S., that's pretty common. The transition is very slow. Um, in yeah, it's, it's interesting because in higher education in general, like with, with different courses, the transition is slow. And you mentioned something interesting between the difference between like the history behind it, which I find very fascinating because if you look at the history, you can also see certain trends and why certain things work a certain way. But then from the other side, also the practical stuff, which you so often are very, especially in higher ed, are very, you should be very careful because it can be over within a, within a second. So you could put something in a book about fine and then two years later, fine can be completely dead, even if Elon wants to bring it back. So, so my question becomes, is there a difference in the approach of where, what kind of social media education there should be between colleges and universities in the U.S. And then also, if you look at Ivy League uh, universities towards other universities, have they adopted it more or just less because of the different mm -hmm. programs as well? Here, 
So that last part is interesting. I haven't done a clear research and looking at the different Ivy League schools and how they're adopting it versus others. I think there, again, it depends a lot on who's running that department, right? And what their philosophy for education is and their focus on those programs. One of the best things that an educational system can do is focus on strategy. The pieces that don't necessarily change and lay a foundation for problem solving, right? And creativity and teaching those skills so that we can adapt and adopt to changes like Vine being gone or Twitter having 4,000 characters, which I hear is coming soon, right? So there's all these things that we don't need to teach students in the college setting how to place a Facebook ad. We need to teach them instead the concepts of what is A-B testing? How do you identify target audiences? And this looks different on different platforms, but what are some of those important things that you want to be sure you're looking for um, so that you can identify the right people to get that ad, right? How do you effectively evaluate variables like the image versus the headline versus the call to action? You know, instead of doing it all in one, you know, here's, here's ad A that looks absolutely nothing like ad B. That's not an adequate A-B test, right? You got to test one variable at a time. It's teaching them those types of strategies and helping them really understand and identify the, the problems they're trying to solve so that when they do go out there, it doesn't matter what platform it is. It could be something brand new. You know, it could be Jen's platform. And they can figure it out based on some basic strategy and understanding of how to connect with audience, what the tools might look like, what content is, and what are the different formats and, and, and engaging in that medium. And so schools that are really winning at this are doing more of that and then bringing in some very tactical or practical examples in things like guest speakers or case studies that are much easier to update. You don't have to get the entire curriculum yeah, exactly. reapproved yeah. by the university, right? You just, you just update that assignment or whatever. That's a lot more useful. I, I want to elaborate on that a little bit more. I spent nine years in education, mainly for online marketing and social media. And now there's one of the reasons I didn't want to stop. I had to stop because of what I wanted to go by and then the things that I wanted to do. But one of the main concerns at a certain point was that like in business, you often have the C-level staff that is not really familiar with social media. Like, okay, they might have a Facebook account, a LinkedIn account, or maybe an Instagram account, like if they're considered hip, which are far now, by far not, not hip platforms at all, but for them, they right. are. And... So they don't really have a good insight on how YouTube works or how TikTok works or how to reach a target audience from a social media perspective. And then on the other side, you have now have a generation who has kind of grown, has grown up with social media, who hasn't necessarily looked at social media from educational perspective or from educational perspective, but they're kind of literate as they are because they grew up with it, but they don't have the basic branding or marketing knowledge. 
So they have never heard of Cutler. They don't know what the four Ps are. Maybe the four Cs, but not even that. So they're kind of not familiar with any marketing terms, which leads to a situation where they are not able to communicate their strategy with the C-level staff that wants at least a solid strategy based on marketing principles, like traditional key marketing principles. And on the, at the same time, because they are not able to translate that, the company is just going completely salt with their, with their online presence. And of course, it takes a couple of years to, to get fully destroyed and be out of the picture, but you slowly see the crumbling. And like, that's where I kind of, my main concern is like also as a former educator or lecturer, how do you ensure that it doesn't become too much about the platforms, but it's also still about the basic principles behind marketing and, and branding and understanding how the market works. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Sean, the great examples. And I actually had the pleasure of seeing you teach one time when I was down in Suriname. So that was very fun. But it, it all goes back to what's core, right? And, and in my mind, communicating effectively with your key stakeholders is part of that strategy conversation. We should be in all classes, not just social media, adequately teaching individuals how to communicate with the other people that they need to share information with. And sometimes that's even like the hiring managers who are looking at your resume. How do you communicate the education you have, the certification you have, the experience you have in a way that's going to give them who probably know nothing about your position and role there at HR director, right? Some insights into whether or not you'd be the right candidate. And so in the colleges and universities, in our certification, if someone were to go through our, our prep, we talk a lot about communication strategies. What does that look like with your C-suite? I did a conversation with a couple of the digital summits here in 2022, where I talked about social media audits, a very tactical piece. But the last part of mine was, okay, now what do you actually communicate to those who care from your audit? You can't give them everything you studied. It's too much. They don't get it, right? Just give them the one to three highlights or takeaways from the, the information you've gathered and tell them why you're recommending those things. And that all comes down to really understanding not only what we do and why we do it in social media marketing, but what others need to know and being very aware of the fact that they may not have the same level of education or experience that we do. It, it comes down to basic communication strategies, something I'm, I'm fortunate to have studied in my undergrad, but it, it's something yeah, that no, we use every no, day. No, it's good because that's, and, and then I'm going to give it back to Diego because I'm really going down the rabbit hole now. You mentioned <laughs> a part about fake news, right? And mm -hmm. like, there are different conversations. Like for instance, I was in a conversation with a teenager or a kid back like 10 years ago or something, like eight, eight years ago. And she was trying to convince me on basing on something she read online that cow milk comes out brown and that they use yeah. scientific methods to, to clear the color. And my first question was, have you ever milked a cow? Like that, that would be because when I grew up, that was part of 
Well, it wasn't part of the curriculum, but it was something that you learned. You went to a farm, you got to milk a cow, and you got to see how milk was made and processed. And from that experience, like that's an actual experience that I had that I can say, like, listen, hold on. There might be information shared with you that is being kind of translated incorrectly, but the core of that, what you're saying is not true at all. Okay. That's an example of something where it's easy to say like, hey, listen, this is fake. But as we get more and more information and we get situations where people, because of the misinformation and the malinformation, are able to abuse the system and other people who willingly or unwillingly vouch for them consider what they say as being the truth it becomes more difficult and difficult and difficult. And I don't even want to go to the level that there have been truths that have been there for centuries that in the past five years has been no longer considered truths. How do you deal with that at a certain point? Because at a certain point, these become scientific discussions through all levels of society. And then it completely, you get completely lost. Yeah. So uh, I love that example. By the way, I heard someone tell me brown cows give you chocolate milk. And yeah, I grew up in a farming community. I know better than that too, Jean-Luc. So yeah, personally, when I'm faced with something that I can't verify, right? I do one of two things. I share the information with caution. And I will tell people, right? Like, I'm not 100% sure that this is true. If it is, we should keep an eye on it, right? But if anyone else has additional information, I'd love to hear it, right? And that's, this is again, going to go through a few filters and everybody has their own levels of filters. But, I, you know, is it helpful for my community to have this information? You know, is what, I know going to be valuable to them or is it gossip or negativity? Like I don't share things just because it's the, what do they call it? The negative, you know, train. I don't jump on that bandwagon of sharing negative news. So I go through my own level of filtering, but if I can't filter it and I do think that there is some degree that might be valid to my community to know, I will tell people, be very open and transparent in my sharing of that, that I don't know, I can't validate it. I'll ask people, do you have other insights or can someone else help me validate this so that we can get to the bottom of it? The other approach is that I just won't share it. Like if I can't validate it and I don't think it's going to provide any value to anyone, then that's information that I'm going to let stop at least with me. They might get it somewhere else, right? But it's going to stop with me because we are the only ones who control what we put out there. And if we all did that, if we all put on some really clear filters that only share what we believe to be true, then we should see a lot less garbage out there, right? There are people trying to fake us out with, you know, deep fake and, and all the different AI technologies that are out there. And, you know, there's just so much. I saw on LinkedIn today, a colleague of mine had a poll and a very long written verbal piece. And the poll was, was this written by AI? Yes or no, right? And why do you think so? 
And, and it was interesting to see it. Now, I've spent some time with him. I know he doesn't talk like that. So I felt like uh, pretty convinced it was AI written. It was very academic in its writing and very lengthy, which is not necessarily his MO. There's an easy right? way to figure that out. <laughs> there are, there, probably there is. are no grammar <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> well, some people are pretty good yeah, with grammar. In, and I yeah, use in, in general, like there could be like, like, like a miss or a little space between a comma or something like that. Where oh, AI I agree. Would, now I use, like, I use Grammarly, which is an oh, AI yeah, tool, okay. right? But I still yeah. only change it when it fits my, my language. Mm. But so there are things out there that are meant to deceive us is my point. And those things, we just have to decide if we're going to share it with others and potentially deceive them or if we're going to let it go. And some of that comes with education. You know, you were talking about that teenager 10 years ago. Shoot, I have two teenagers myself. One is a freshman in college and one is a junior in high school. You have no idea how many days we have conversations about truth in media. You know, I'll say, where'd you see that? Instagram. Who posted it? So-and-so. Well, what's their background? How do they know that? You know, like, and, and half the time they can't answer. <laughs> right? And so it's like, well, how do you know that to be true? Trying to get them to think, to problem solve for themselves. And that's something we have failed, I think, yeah, I our younger generation. Yeah, we have also failed providing with what are considered quality sources. I think we failed in that <laughs> as well as previously considered quality sources kind of also start providing. I mean, there was a website, a news website that was, I'm not sure if it's still considered one of the top three or top five online websites in our country. And they wrote an article that I was like, wait, but this is like a, for a gossip magazine. This makes, why is this news? Like, why? And it even felt like a troll at some point that I was like, did somebody send this in? Was some people trolling? Like there was no actual value in the article itself. It was like your entertainment brought in a formal way. So I feel like also it's, it's from both sides and we're kind of getting lost in, in a sea of information and maybe interesting from a personal perspective. How do you filter all the information that comes through your different feeds through all those different social media platforms? Ooh, that's a good one. I straight up skip some stuff, right? I just don't even spend time with the noise that happens. We, we talked about politics a little bit earlier. You know, I'm based in the U.S. There's a lot of controversy happening here. If I want to know what's happening with our government, then I will go to trusted sites and look for that information. I'm not going to search out what my friends and family are saying on Facebook about it because that is laced with personal opinion and sometimes satire, right? So to interject there really quickly, how do you determine what a trusted site is? Because in as social media has grown, even the biggest media outlets have been surrounded by controversy in the type of articles they put out because it's seemingly biased. If you would break it down from fundamental principle, mm -hmm. there is a lot of bias there to a certain There is. Yeah. So how do you determine what's trusted? So I typically, so we know, most of us know that, right? Most of us know the biases that are projected by different organizations. And so if I'm going to look at a news outlet, I'm probably going to look at two. 
one that leans a little bit more conservative and one that leans a little bit more liberal so that I can make some sort of generalization that's maybe a little closer to the truth. Because What, what part of the story is being told by both parties? Kind of. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so it takes extra time. But, but that's how I avoid a lot of the chatter and the noise that's on socials. I just, if people are talking about certain politicians or certain, I skip those things. And when I'm working, I don't pay any attention to any of it. And then when I have time and I'm not working, you know, to connect with folks in social media, then I am looking and investigating those things that are valuable so that I can make an informed decision because I am a, a member of this community called the U.S. and I need to make an informed vote, right, at some point. And so I need to do my research as well. But that includes, you know, Diego, your point, looking at, at things from multiple sources and understanding the potential biases. You could talk to a political candidate face to face and you'll get half truths sometimes, right? So it's really no different than trying to look at all sides and maybe have more than one conversation, read more than one article from one author so that you can figure out what are those things that are common ground and what are those things that are being said by more than one person? It's tough. Yes. Oh. And no, and time. I want to ask a question to the board of you. When you do your research on a topic, do you sign out of social media? Oh, well, I use different browsers. So it, 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 it depends on what research is. I'll sometimes deliberately stay logged in because then it's catered to, as Jennifer said, there's some trusted resources, some people you already follow. That's kind of the, the baseline filter, right? To cross-reference. If I'm really going deep, I'll also check in incognito mode to see if search results get the same, you know, top-level search results. But that, that's it, it's really interesting. But in general, if it's just something really surface level or not too deep, I've kind of built, especially on YouTube, build this certain degree of trusted uh, resources that I know that has a certain degree of fact-checking and set and that I can re really skim through it. And then when I look through that content, then I'll analyze like, okay, it's not the full story. Like, for example, as John looked last week, I shared a doki series with you, like a one-hour series. Yes, great points, but there's still some, you know, perspectives missing. But you, you can understand, and that's where you go to other sources. But don't just dismiss them or agree with them outright. That's kind of my general approach. Yeah, I would have to say I'm fairly similar to you, Diego, in that, like, if it's something I just want to know quickly, you know, I don't sign out because it will hopefully help me filter things to the top that are trusted sources as we go. If it's a little bit more in depth or if I don't really want to affect how things are showing up, I might go a little bit more incognito and, and look at things anonymously or more anonymously anyways. But for the most part, I don't sign out because I... Yeah. I just don't. I ask this for, especially with YouTube, I have to say, I can get into rabbit holes quite easily. Well, when I do it do with yeah. YouTube, like every few months, I clear out my history completely. So uh, it's kind okay. of a, a refresh. Yeah, because the, if, uh, if I accidentally hit some videos, 
it's really hard to get rid of them, of the yeah. of that topic or those kind of sources which are deemed credible. So, and that's, so that's actually the reason why I started to like purge the, the, yeah. the cash every few months. I wish I could do that with my streaming apps. Because <laughs> sometimes you, you look at something and the description is good and you're like, no. Or my kid gets logged into mine and it's like, no, I don't want to watch this Ooh. bloody war thing. <laughs> you know? Yes. I, okay. On the topic of verifying, like, you know, the, the verification and checking your sources is quite important. On the other side, I also think as these social media platforms have evolved, they kind of removed a lot of friction in sharing stuff. Like Twitter, for example, it's so easy to read with Facebook. It's so easy to share without thinking it through. And this is, as I think Gary Vaynerchuk was, we're, we're in an attention economy. Like it's a few seconds to catch someone's attention and these social media platforms have built their algorithms and user experience as such that there's almost no friction. And when you go to the level of, you know, verifying, as you said, you check out multiple sources, this adds layers of friction for the consumer. So how do you think if we're looking at it from an education perspective, from a, not even a professional perspective, but from a consumer how could the average user be educated in the way they consume or like share? Oh, that's a really, really fun yeah, question, right? <laughs> um, and, and we have to start way earlier. I mean, I'll be honest with that. We have to start way earlier. We cannot wait for this digitally connected young group to get out into the workforce or even college for that matter before we're teaching them skills of discernment to really look at things objectively. It goes back to the whole, you know, brown milk situation, right? Like, how do we figure out what's true and trusted? And just because somebody has a million followers on any platform doesn't mean they're an expert, right? I always go back to, and it's funny because I haven't looked this person up, so I don't have a username or anything, but somebody was talking to me about on TikTok that screams, they're known for just like screaming. And a brand was like, I need to bring that person as an influencer because they have a million followers. What are they going to do for you? Like, I don't understand. Yes, exactly. Oh, hold on. No, you know, it's like, I, I just because they have followers does not make them an expert on all things. And we have to start by, you know, maybe it's at home, right? The families providing these devices need to give some some guidance and, and oversight, which we already know is probably not happening in most homes. So how do we then teach educators who are using these tools in the, the secondary education system how to discern information? One of it might be, hey, guys, let's not use Wikipedia as the one-sided source in your research paper, you know, or little things hey, like I'll that. Object to that. We're just kidding. Then I said one-sided source. The, but the funny thing is we, and, and, and this is the, something with the younger generation, and I will attest to that as well. They don't know another source. Like the Wikipedia is their encyclopedia. It's, 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 that's the way it is at the moment. And I think it's also the skill of getting somebody's attention and the skill of actually creating something useful. And I think there's, there's this weird ongoing balance and we have like influencers who are 
larger than complete companies. And then something that I try to tell companies and influencers all the time is like, listen, as a company, you have to understand that this person on their own has a bigger following than your whole company. And then I have to explain to the influencers as well, like, listen, you might have a bigger following than the, than the company, but realize that this company has been around for 30 years and you've only done this for three. So there's something to learn from both sides. And I think that's as, as long as there's kind of a mutual understanding, like, hey, I can learn from you, you can learn from me, then everything is fine. But way too often, it's, it's kind of cut off into this, I'm right, no, you're wrong situation where the conversation just stops. And then you basically get back to your communication skills, as you were saying. Mm -hmm. So the next time I'm in an argument with somebody over something that's being said on social media, what is my step-by-step -step plan to get into a situation where it's more about understanding and learning from each other than finding out whether you're right or wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's asking questions, right? Like, it's so important to think through that process. Where are you getting that information from? Why do you feel that way? You know, can help us understand. But you're right there. We're not teaching the young people how to have those conversations. We're teaching them to consume the information and in some cases spit that information out. What I think is going to be interesting is a lot of these people that are growing up today with technology spend less time posting content than probably any other generation. So will we end up at some point with a content void of some sort? And then do we start over? So wow. to come yeah. up with a follow-up question on that, I'm curious, as you mentioned AI before, what the role of I will be in that quote-unquote potential content void? Because you say less creators, but now there's another technology on the rise that kind of turns the whole game upside down yep. again. Like it's going to be harder to discern mm -hmm. that the quality of content that's getting pumped out, it's kind of on par people that have like 10, 15 years of experience, traditional, you know, fundamental principles. Like, how do you see the role of AI influencing the state of social media in the next, say, five mm -hmm. years? Something like Copy AI or Jasper AI helps content creators make like headlines and all these kind of things now. So uh, I wish I had a magic eight ball, right? I I'm excited to see what happens with it. And I'm a little terrified. Just like, you know, 20 years ago when we talked about cloning and and all of that was a really large science and technology breakthrough. And now we're, you know, printing things with a 3D printer that are being used in surgeries and things. So technology, I can't quite predict where we'll be. AI is going to definitely play a big piece of that, but it still needs to be, at least today, it still needs to be triggered by a creator, somebody who has an intent to share something and an interest to share something for it in order to, to generate something, right? And what I'm seeing from at least the generation of high schools, high school students right now, is they don't even have that intent to generate. And so those of us that are a little bit older might keep that going for a while. But what happens when we are tired, right? 
if they don't have the intent to create, then it doesn't really matter if we have these AI tools. Now, if those AI tools get smart enough to create on their own, and they can say, well, here's what we've created for the last you know, five years. Let's just put out an evolution of this type of content and see what we get for responses and adjust based on that. If they get smart enough for that, then, then maybe the noise continues. But it'll be fun to kind of see what that looks like. It's, it's interesting. Quickly on, on what you said, Jennifer. I, I'm, see, I'm not necessarily worried about a fight of content because content, if it's good, it should be evergreen. So what I'm hoping is that this generation cleans it up, like saying like, okay, this is rubbish content. Just clean it up, yeah. clean it up until all the good stuff is left, or at least pay less and less attention to not worthy content or content that's mm -hmm. just not good enough. And the second thing, Diego, about AI, I'm less worried about AI. Here's the reason why. Even if you were to create AI entertainment, AI like AI that could write jokes, you would still have the problem that it will not land in different communities because it, in the end, it's not able to create that part. And there's so many pieces of the human brain that we still don't have, we haven't figured out that for the AI to incorporate that in the machine learning, it would take so much time. So. All the creative stuff that makes people different, like creators that are very popular because they are able to say something in such a way that artists aren't, AI won't be able to copy that. The only thing that AI copies is the boring stuff, like really well-written, good text. Yes, that's, that's done. So those are the ones that are going to have to battle the hardest. But as soon as you can, even with the... the Creating the stuff, it's, it's still a difference. And I see it in my field a lot where it's very much different if you have a quality written article, which is on an international level, and a quality lit written article, which is written specifically for the use case mentioned by the company. And to make that possible, and you know where I found this out, Diego? Jennifer, Diego is helping me out creating AI images from scratch. and I'm not getting the images from the AI bot that I want to see. And this is because the terms and the keywords that I want to incorporate, there's not enough data on those terms to create something that, that meshes. And I think that's where, like for the, the topics that everybody talks about, AI is going to completely destroy the space. But like for the niche topics and the niche things, that's where there's, it's going to take a long time because for AI to work, it needs data. And if there's no data available on it, well, it's, it's going to be messy. Yeah, I think those are good points. I, and I love what you said too about cleaning up instead of having a content void, cleaning up the, the noise. I, I hope that that I really is exactly what happened. They will pick that up. And I felt like then we might be able to get rid of some of that fake yeah. news too, right? But I think it, it starts with the okay boomer. I think it starts already. It mm -hmm. starts there. That they're the first generation that's able to stand up to the boomers, basically. Because before that, the millennials, Gen, Gen X, we haven't been able to stand up to the boomer generation because the, the, the feeling was always that they were superior. 
They were superior in understanding languages because they learned more languages. They were superior in being specialized because nowadays it's kind of hard to be specialized in something, whereas they grew up in a generation where you were being trained to be specialized in something. So from those perspectives, it's already, we're already seeing like a trend of them just saying like, yeah, but I don't really care that much. I think the only worry, and that's a topic that we have invited this podcast is they're also pretty much interested in just money and just give me the money and I'll figure it out for myself instead of using the structures that are already there. So I think there's some positives, but also some concerns at the same time. Yeah. We could talk for weeks on end about some of this, you know, there's so much to explore. And so I'm excited to be where I am today, watching things unfold and trying to help people navigate through it. But there, I have to surround myself with people a lot smarter than me, you know, like you gentlemen to, to help give insights into what's working and what's not. And I look forward to, to seeing this conversation unfold. Awesome. Likewise, and they also need someone to package that and, you know, repackage it over the years yeah. to, to make sure that it still stays relevant. But with that being said, Chandluk, do you think? No, I think we no, have I, one I, question, I think we'll skip the over which under. is what is in store for 2023? Or at least is there something you want to share? Or if people are interested, how can they reach out to you? Sure. So there's a lot of questions in that, in that one. 2023, I'm excited to see what comes. I do think we're going to see exploration of additional AI tools, but I don't know how much adoption there'll be. I think the exploration will be big. Video in the marketing space continues to dominate. I think that will stay. What I'm really curious about, honestly, when you look at platforms, is the steady growth. LinkedIn has had some seriously steady growth since COVID, where others has ha have had, you know, kind of like flash in the pans, like really big growth pieces. And I'm wondering which ones will kind of filter down uh, and slow down or maybe even reverse over the coming year. So we'll see what that looks like. As far as contacting me, I would be more than happy to chat with anybody who wants to about education, social media, certification. They can reach me at nismonline.org, or you can pretty much Google search Jennifer Radke SMS, and I should show up on LinkedIn, Twitter, probably the NISM webpage. But I, I welcome that conversation anytime, comments under each of these lives, and I'll reach out and get back to you. Happy to have this and other conversations with folks as much as possible. I think that's the one, right? NISMonline.org. Yep. All right, there we go. With that being said, Jennifer, thank you for coming on the social convo. It's been a pleasure. It's been a fun conversation. As you said, we could go on and on as we just opened some more topics, but uh, we'll keep it at that for this one. Sean, look, you got any final thoughts? And then close well, on. I want to thank everybody for watching the live edition of this social convo. If you are listening to one of the streaming platforms or listening or watching this later, Thank you as well for joining in. Jennifer, it was a pleasure to have this conversation and we look forward to seeing more of you and the National Institute of Social Media in the coming years. And Diego, I think it's time. We'll be back for another edition of Social Confos. See you back next week. Bye-bye.